Hello and welcome to the December 7th, 2021 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm looking forward to letting you know about the new articles you'll find if you go to annals.org. Let's get started. The first article I'll highlight reports a modeling study that found that the very small number of deaths averted from breast cancer screening may be eclipsed by cost and potential harms of overdiagnosis when annual mammography screenings is extended past age 75 years. Biennial screening mammography to age 80 years is more cost-effective, but the absolute number of deaths averted is small, especially for women with other underlying health conditions. The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommends mammogram screening every other year for women through 74 years of age, and the American Cancer Society recommends mammograms for women beyond age 74 if they have a life expectancy of 10 or more years. These recommendations differ because relatively few women older than 74 were included in randomized controlled trials. Researchers for the National Cancer Institute and the National Institutes of Health use data from SEER, the Surveillance Epidemiology and End Results Program, and the Breast Cancer Surveillance Consortium to compare breast cancer deaths, survival, and costs with annual or biennial mammography screening from age 65 years to ages 75, 80, 85, and 90 across comorbidity levels. The researchers adapted a previously published Markov microsimulation model to assess the interventions in women 65 years or older without a previous diagnosis of ductal carcinoma in situ or invasive breast cancer. They found that mammogram screening every year after age 75 did not provide more benefit than harm with regard to women's quality of life and cost of care. But mammogram screening every other year from age 75 to 80 did provide more benefit than harm. However, few deaths were avoided, especially for women with comorbid conditions. According to the study authors, women considering screening beyond age 75 years near to weigh the harms of overdiagnosis versus the potential benefit of averting death from breast cancer. In accompanying editorial, Dr. Otis Brawley advocates for the importance of considering cost effectiveness in U.S. healthcare recommendations. He writes, quote, it is unlikely that a cost effectiveness study will lead to de-implementation of annual screening in many American women aged 75 years or older. However, such studies might encourage development of models for risk-based screening. Risk-based screening, considering the subject's health status and personal breast cancer risk using polygenic testing, epidemiologic risk calculators, breast density, or a combination, might be an acceptable compromise to our current inefficient practices." End quote. Next is a multicenter prospective cohort study that found that overall, patients with subsegmental pulmonary embolism who did not have proximal deep venous thrombosis had a higher than expected rate of recurrent venous thromboembolism. The incidence of pulmonary embolism has been increasing, but its case fatality rate is decreasing, suggesting overdiagnosis and a lesser severity of illness. Hence, the clinical significance of single or multiple isolated subsegmental pulmonary emboli, that is, no pulmonary embolism in segmental or more proximal vessels, has been questioned. Researchers from the Ottawa General Hospital studied 266 patients at 18 sites over a 10-year period to determine the rate of recurrent venous thromboembolism in patients with subsegmental pulmonary embolism managed without anticoagulation. At diagnosis, patients underwent bilateral lower extremity venous ultrasonography, which was repeated one week later if results were negative. Patients without venous thrombosis did not receive anticoagulant therapy. 
At the 90-day follow-up, the incidence of recurrent venous thromboembolism was 2.1% and 5.7% in patients with single and multiple isolated subsegmental pulmonary emboli, respectively. No patients had a fatal recurrent pulmonary embolism. These findings have implications for management of these patients with anticoagulation. COVID-19 is more severe in transplant recipients, and variants of concern have supplanted wild-type virus. The next article reports a secondary analysis of a randomized trial that examines neutralizing antibody responses against SARS-CoV-2 variants in transplant recipients after two and three vaccine doses. 117 transplant recipients were analyzed, 60 in the mRNA vaccine group and 57 in the placebo group. After two doses of vaccine, the proportion of patients with positive neutralization for all three variants was small compared with wild-type virus. After the third dose of mRNA vaccine, the proportion with the positive neutralization response versus placebo was improved for all three variants as measured by two different assays. These findings suggest that in organ transplant recipients, a third dose of mRNA vaccine increases neutralizing antibody response against SARS-CoV-2 variants compared with placebo. Chest pain is a common complaint for patients in emergency care settings, but only 10 to 20% of patients who present with chest pain are having acute myocardial infarction. Quick ways to rule out myocardial infarction would help to avoid emergency department crowding and improve patient outcomes. Researchers from National Taiwan University College of Medicine performed a comparative analysis between three algorithms recommended by the European Society of Cardiology. The 0-3-hour algorithm, which has traditionally served as the preferred diagnostic protocol, applies a cardiac troponin threshold at the 99th percentile of a normal reference population at presentation and three hours in conjunction with clinical criteria to rule out or rule in myocardial infarction. Recently, the European Society of Cardiology instead recommended using a 0-1 or 0-2 algorithm which applies assay-specific cardiac troponin thresholds lower than 99th percentile of a normal reference population at presentation, combined with absolute changes within the first or second hour to triage patients into rule-out, observation, and rule-in groups. Comparing 32 studies with 20 unique co cohorts, the authors found that the 01, 02, and 03 algorithms had sensitivities of 99, 98.8, and 93.7% respectively. An accompanying editorial commends the authors of the review for nicely synthesizing the best approaches to using high-sensitivity cardiac troponin assays for ruling in or ruling out myocardial infarction in patients with chest pain, and states, quote, further research should focus on the utility of cardiac troponin assays to more accurately identify patients at very high risk for adverse cardiac events to better prioritize anatomical and functional testing for those most likely to benefit. End quote. Next is a commentary that argues for expanding the use of short-acting opioids in situations where pain is not present but patients are suffering from opioid withdrawal symptoms that are inadequately relieved with methadone or buprenorphine. Current U.S. recommendations do not recommend short-acting opioids for such patients. The treatment of opioid withdrawal symptoms among hospital inpatients has three principal clinical objectives. Relieve patients suffering and distress enable patients to remain in the hospital for medically necessary care, and facilitate initiation of long-term treatment of opioid use disorder. In the U.S., methadone or buprenorphine is typically used in patients with opioid withdrawal, 
and many patients receive suboptimal relief of their withdrawal symptoms. The authors challenge this dogma. They argue that the use of short-acting opioids may allow more individualized opioid withdrawal treatment, facilitate transitions to longer-term opioid use disorder treatment, and enable patient-centered models of opioid withdrawal. They note that randomized controlled trials are ultimately needed to determine the efficacy of this adjunctive approach and whether it can be effectively and safely combined with traditional and novel implementation strategies for methadone and buprenorphine treatment. The next article reports a randomized trial that found that video-based telehealth-delivered exercise and weight loss programs with online education and all support improve pain and function in people with knee osteoarthritis and overweight or obesity. The intervention that included a dietary component conferred modest additional pain and function benefits and led to substantial weight loss. Osteoarthritis affects more than 32.5 million adults in the United States and is a major public health problem around the world. Knee osteoarthritis is commonly associated with overweight and obesity, which aggravate pain and disability, accelerate osteoarthritis progression, and increase the likelihood of requiring costly knee surgery. Scalable knee osteoarthritis programs are needed to deliver recommended education, exercise, and weight loss interventions. Researchers from the University of Melbourne recruited 416 people with persistent knee pain to participate in the Better Knee, Better Me trial. Patients were randomly assigned to one of two six-month telehealth-delivered programs, one with and one without dietary intervention compared with an information-only control group. During the trial, participants in the intervention groups were provided support from physiotherapists and dietitians via Zoom and had a suite of educational resources available online. Those in the exercise plus diet group also received meal replacements so they could maintain a ketogenic, low-calorie diet. At six months, the researchers found that compared to control, participants in both intervention programs had significant improvements in knee pain, physical function, and quality of life which were retained over the longer-term follow-up. Compared to the exercise-only program, the combined exercise and diet program led to additional benefits, including a greater reduction in pain, greater improvements in physical function, lower use of pain medications, and an average weight loss of 22 pounds over the six-month program. According to the researchers, these findings suggest that telehealth programs represent potentially scalable and accessible ways for people with knee osteoarthritis to receive recommended behavioral interventions. The transition to dilutegravir containing antiretroviral therapy for the treatment of HIV infection in low- and middle-income countries was complicated by initial safety signal in May 2018, suggesting that exposure to the drug at conception was possibly associated with infant neural tube defects. Based on additional evidence, the WHO recommended dilutegravir for all adults and adolescents living with HIV in July 2019. To examine what happened after the WHO lifted the warning about the use of dilutegravir in women of childbearing potential, researchers studied health records for 134,672 patients aged 16 years or older who received HIV care from January 2017 through March 2020 to describe dilutegravir uptake and disparities by sex and age groups in 11 low- and middle-income countries. They documented substantial disparities in dilutegravir uptake affecting females of reproductive age through early 2020. 
By the end of follow-up, the cumulative incidence of dilutegravir uptake among females 16 to 49 years of age was 29.4% compared with 57.7% among males in the same age group. This disparity was greater in countries that began implementing dilutegravir before the safety signal and initially had highly restrictive policies versus countries with a later rollout of the drug. The researchers note that although this disparity was anticipated because of country-level restrictions on access, the results highlight its extent and persistence. The study has policy implications and program implementation considerations for national AIDS program and large initiatives such as the U.S. PEPFAR program, which are striving to ensure that women with HIV get the most health benefit from their HIV treatment regimens. Next is a randomized controlled trial of gastric bypass versus gastric sleeve surgery for reducing fatty liver disease. In the trial, both procedures led to a substantial reduction in liver fat five weeks after surgery and almost complete clearance of liver fat one year after surgery. The effect of bariatric surgery on liver scarring or cirrhosis was not clear. Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is a significant problem because it leads to inflammation in the liver and cirrhosis, which may progress to liver failure or liver cancer. The condition is more commonly seen in people with diabetes or obesity, and moderate weight loss is the first-line treatment. The most common weight loss surgeries are Roux-en-Y gastric bypass and sleeve gastrectomy. Gastric bypass is more complicated and riskier than sleeve surgery, but some low-quality studies suggest that gastric bypass may be superior to gastric sleeve surgery in reducing non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in patients with type 2 diabetes and obesity. Researchers in Norway recruited 109 patients with type 2 diabetes and obesity who were scheduled to undergo weight loss surgery. Patients were randomly assigned to undergo either gastric bypass or gastric sleeve surgery. The researchers followed the study patients for one year after weight loss surgery and compared changes in liver fat content and amount of liver scarring between the groups. The researchers found that both procedures effectively reduced liver fat. Bariatric surgery had less influence on the degree of scarring in the short term, but researchers plan to follow participants for five more years to gather further insights about the comparative effectiveness of the two procedures. The direct-acting oral anticoagulants, apixaban and rigveroxaban, are replacing vitamin K antagonists for the treatment of venous thromboembolism in adults. Yet, head-to-head comparisons of apixaban and rivaroxaban remain limited. The next article report provides such a comparison in a new user active comparator cohort study. From a U.S.-based commercial healthcare insurance database, the researchers assembled a cohort of over 36,000 patients who were 18 years or older, had venous thromboembolism, and were new users of either apixaban or rivaroxaban. The primary effectiveness outcomes were recurrent venous thromboembolism, and the primary safety outcome was major bleeding, a composite of gastrointestinal and intracranial bleeding. Propensity score matching was used to account for measured confounders. The findings, though limited by relatively short follow-up, suggest that apixaban has superior effectiveness and safety compared with rivaroxaban in this setting. TC-325 is a hemostatic powder that can be used during endoscopy to treat acute non-variceal bleeding, but its effectiveness as a sole endoscopic treatment has been uncertain. 
The next article reports a one-sided non-inferiority randomized controlled trial comparing hemostatic powder with standard endoscopic hemostatic treatments in the control of active bleeding from non-variceal upper gastrointestinal causes. The researchers randomized 224 adult patients with acute bleeding from a non-variceal cause at upper GI endoscopy to treatment with either hemostatic powder or standard hemostatic treatment and examined bleeding control over 30 days, including failure to control bleeding during index endoscopy and recurrent bleeding after initial hemostasis. The etiology of bleeding was gastroduodenal ulcers in 60.7% of study patients, tumors in 14.7%, and other causes in 27.7%. Control of bleeding over 30 days was 90.1% in the hemostatic powder group and 81.4%, a risk difference of 8.7% with a 95% confidence interval of 1 to 16.4. Clinicians were not blinded to treatment and study patients had heterogeneous causes of bleeding, but the findings suggest that hemostatic powder is not inferior to standard treatment in the endoscopic control of bleeding from non-variceal upper gastrointestinal causes. Thymine supplementation is recommended for patients with alcohol use disorder and critical illness. To assess the frequency with which thymine supplementation is provided in this setting, the authors of the next article used the Cerner Health Facts database to study 14,998 adult ICU patients diagnosed with alcohol use disorder and receiving ICU care for alcohol withdrawal, septic shock, traumatic brain injury, and or diabetic ketoacidosis admitted between 2010 and 2017. In this group, overall mortality was 9% and 7,689, or 51% of patients, received thymine. Rates of thymine use differed by critical illness for alcohol withdrawal, septic shock, traumatic brain injury, and DKA. Thymine administration was 59%, 26%, 41%, and 24%, respectively. Compared to alcohol withdrawal, odds of receiving thymine was lower in septic shock and DKA. This relationship remained unchanged in adjusted analyses. These observations suggest that thymine supplementation is often not provided to critically ill patients with alcohol use disorder and the need for quality improvement studies to foster its use. Video teleconferencing as a substitute for or an adjunct to in-person healthcare has increased in recent years gaining particular popularity during the COVID-19 pandemic. The last new article I'll highlight is a systematic review to identify what we currently know about the benefits and harms of video teleconferencing visits for disease prevention, diagnosis, and treatment, and to describe gaps in the evidence. The authors searched PubMed, Embase, Web of Science, and the Cochrane Library from January 1, 2013 to March 3, 2021, and identified 38 randomized controlled trials meeting inclusion criteria. Excluded were studies focused on mental health, substance use disorders, maternal care, and weight management. Included studies were limited to trials with sample sizes of 50 or greater. The available studies suggest that video teleconferencing for the treatment and management of disease produces largely similar outcomes compared with broadly defined usual care. Studies that favored video teleconferencing over usual care typically involved multi-component video teleconferencing interventions. No studies evaluated the use of video teleconferencing for diagnosis or prevention of disease. 
Studies that reported harms found no differences between the intervention and control groups. However, many studies did not report harms. No studies evaluated the impact of video teleconferencing on health equity or disparities. This brings us to the end of this podcast. There are opportunities to earn CME and MOC if you go to annals.org to read some of the new articles I've highlighted. I hope you return in two weeks for the next Annals podcast. Hard to believe, but it will be our last podcast before the new year. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.